الجزيرة بودكاست A statement from AFRICOM, the U.S. Africa Command. February 2nd, 2020, the U.S. Africa Command conducted an airstrike targeting an Al-Shabaab terrorist in the vicinity of Jalib, Somalia. The statement says, We currently assess no civilians were injured or killed as a result of this airstrike. This is the language of war we're used to. Date, location, casualties. And we hear these statements a lot out of Somalia. But what happens when the statements from the top don't match the reality from the ground? They told you that they have killed one Al-Shabaab militant and wounded another one. And that was something not true. And it was a misleading information. This is a story about that disconnect and how it impacts a U.S. conflict that's increasingly away from the headlines. I'm Kevin Hurton, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. We first aired this episode in May 2020. In May 2022, U.S. President Joe Biden approved the return of special operations forces on the ground in Somalia. But that doesn't mean the airstrikes will stop. In fact, in Somalia, airstrikes haven't stopped since 2007. That's 15 years of airstrikes. And in that time, the U.S. has admitted to just five civilian casualties. Until 2019, that number was zero. While Donald Trump was in office, the U.S. made big public efforts to get out of foreign entanglements. As a candidate for president, I loudly pledged a new approach. Great nations do not fight endless wars. But there were more U.S. airstrikes in Somalia in 2020 than in the entire eight years of the Obama administration. So that disconnect between what was said and what's happening on the ground, it matters. We're talking to three people who've worked to uncover civilian harm from U.S. airstrikes. And they all mentioned that to understand what's happening in Somalia today, you need to know about this airstrike back in 2020 because of what happened next. My name is Mohammed Osman. I work for the official news agents of the Somali federal government. Mohammed lives in Mogadishu, but his hometown is in Jalib district. That's an area controlled by the armed group Al-Shabaab. On February the 2nd, on Sunday evening, there was an airstrike which hit some members of my relatives. They had no linkage with Al-Shabaab militants. They were all civilians. Mohammed's relatives were sitting down for a family dinner in their home. They were having a dinner together. There was only my brother-in-law, his mother, and three of his daughters. So four of them was hit by a missile from an AI strike. His elder daughter, who was about 17, was seriously injured and died on the spot. The next day, Mohammed says it was difficult to have the funerals because of the constant warplanes overhead. It's a story that's played out in Somalia many times before. But there was one difference. While his family was trying to bury their loved ones, Mohammed was in the capital, Mogadishu, at a workshop on counterterrorism in Somalia. Also there was the U.S. military, 
AFRICOM. So in the middle of the program, I raised my hand and told it about how when uh, military operation is happening in Somalia, that Somalia or AFRICOM often talk about the Al-Shabaab or terrorists, not the civilian casualty. Mohammed says he told them what's shared with the media is not the reality on the ground. Because the night before was the night that my relatives were, were bombarded by the USA strikes. And that is what I said in the workshop. Mohammed called it a first. A relative of a US airstrike survivor stood in front of AFRICOM and the Somali government and confronted them directly. He could feel the tension in the room. They were not uh, very pleased about how I broke the silence and told something unexpected to be said in the workshop. So uh, a guy from AFRICOM office said, sorry, uh, Muhammad, what, to what you have said, but as a U.S., we often try our best to avoid civilian casualties. This is, this is his comment. But he said he couldn't be satisfied with what he heard that day. It was... It was very devastating because this is not a single incident which happened to me alone, but it often happens in Somalia and it is never reported. Such mistakes are not one or two or three. This confrontation wasn't supposed to happen. Civilian victims of airstrikes are usually not relatives of government journalists who can speak truth to power. That job usually falls to people like Abdullahi Hassan. Back in 2020, he was the Somalia researcher for Amnesty International. He spent two years tracking down people whose voices don't usually reach AFRICOM ears. We're going to talk a lot about civilian casualties in Somalia, but I'd, I'd love to start with talking about civilian life in parts of Somalia controlled by al-Shabaab. What is life like for your average person there? When you come to al-Shabaab controlled areas, most of the time, they live a normal life. Of course, they live in fear, especially those who don't support al-Shabaab. Life is more difficult because al-Shabaab are trying to, you know, control the population. They forcefully recruit children. Most of, of, of the people are very poor people uh, who have been living in a conflict situation for, for more than 30 years. It's not just the Shabaab-held areas that are in conflict. The government-held areas are also under constant threat of attack. Once again, the city of Mogadishu is living through the aftermath of an attack. And once again, those responsible are al-Shabaab fighters. The massive blast killed at least 500 Somalis, injured hundreds more. It's been described as the largest explosion in Somalia's troubled history and the worst attack since 9-11 in the U.S. Attacks like that don't make for an easy place for human rights research. Abdullahi says a big challenge is simply getting on the ground. Number one is a question of access. I'm based here in Nairobi. Um, to come up with verifiable information, you need to go uh, to the ground and speak with witnesses. You know, double check what people are telling you. But none of that is possible because Al-Shabaab won't allow visits from human rights researchers. Actually, Abdullahi says that it's risky to even move around Mogadishu. So I literally go to Mogadishu, stay in one hotel for five, six, seven, or ten days. But despite that, Amnesty was able to uncover a small number of civilian casualties from U.S. airstrikes, which AFRICOM denied. 
But soon after, they did admit to two civilian deaths in one airstrike in April 2018. So that was the first time AFRICOM have ever admitted to have killed civilians in Somalia. We interviewed more than 180 individuals in Somalia, eyewitnesses, since 2017. And I always ask the question whether they were ever contacted by AFRICOM or by another U.S. official, and none of them said they were ever contacted. Meanwhile, Abdullahi had done extensive investigations, contacting witnesses with family members, with relatives, with clan elders, with government officials. You know, people like us who understand the language are able to conduct all these interviews and compare them with other videos and photographs and geolocate exact location of these airstrikes. And in most cases, identify the exact weapons that are used. We are beyond certain that whatever we have is the actual truth. But then, Abdullahi says, they share that information with AFRICOM. And the response they usually get is that AFRICOM relies on intelligence and assessments that are not available to non-military organizations. That's where they say, whatever you guys are saying is false, is unsubstantiated. Those people who are Shabab members, and we killed them. Case closed. And in the rare cases where they have admitted uh, to killing civilians, it is very strange that they have not even reached out to the families and they had to, to give them preparation or any form of compensation. Back in 2020, Abdullahi said that the single incident that AFRICOM admitted to in 2019, they had yet to reach out to the family. And the family told me that they were very upset that the U.S. military are not reaching to them and they are looking for other means of getting to them. To understand what led to this impasse in the first place, we have to go back a bit and look at the timeline of U.S. involvement in Somalia. The worst U.S. casualties yet in Somalia, forcing the Pentagon to send reinforcements into what has become an all-out urban war. October 3rd, 1993, 18 troops killed. Some of their bodies dragged through the streets of Mogadishu. The incident, called Black Hawk Down, has haunted U.S. military and diplomatic policy ever since. Well, we're not going back quite that far, though that disaster resonates in the U.S. to this day. It's one reason why the ground forces under President Biden will be reportedly only just a few hundred troops. We're just going back about a decade or so. And the timeline also tracks the evolution of warfare itself and the scope of civilian harm. We'd had a period where militaries had begun claiming that modern warfare was now so precise that civilians weren't being harmed anymore. Chris Woods is the founder and former director of Air Wars, a group that monitors civilian harm in conflict. But that wasn't matching out what was being heard by journalists on the ground. My own organization believes at least 70, 70 civilians have been killed by AFRICOM actions or U.S. actions, broader U.S. actions in Somalia. That was in mid-2020. Today, it's at least 90 civilians killed. In 2020, there were at least 54 airstrikes. I have to say that's also a relatively small number compared to the other major campaigns the U.S. wages. But it's beginning more and more to resemble the more conventional wars the U.S. is fighting elsewhere. 
So the interesting thing about this story is that while U.S. involvement in other wars has been decreasing, in Somalia, it's actually increased. When I first began reporting on U.S. strikes in Somalia a decade ago, the U.S. policy was say nothing. The CIA refused even to confirm or deny the existence of the campaign. The Obama administration dismissed all claims of civilian harm. Terrorist groups like Al-Shabaab offer nothing but death and destruction and have to be stopped. We've got more work to do. I think the attitude had been, up until about 2014, that you could conduct a strike with, with relatively little blowback. But I think over time, the issue of civilian harm had become so contentious that the administration introduced a rule change that said a strike couldn't be taken in places like Iraq, Yemen, Somalia, Pakistan, unless there was a near certainty of no civilians being killed. And that was a welcome change that definitely led to a sharp reduction in reported civilian deaths. And then, as so many things did, it all changed under President Trump. In 2017, the Trump administration designated Somalia an Area of Active Hostility, AAH. That loosened the rules about when strikes could take place and who could be targeted. Here's former AFRICOM Commander General Thomas Waldhauser speaking to the U.S. Congress. It's very important and very helpful for us to have a little bit more flexibility, a little bit more timeliness in terms of decision-making process, and it allow us to prosecute targets in a more rapid fashion. There was a phrase used by uh, a couple of officials during the Obama administration of mowing the grass, the idea that many of these strikes were just trying to keep the command structures down in groups like al-Shabaab, but they weren't really changing anything. I think we have seen a strategic shift under Trump, and the strikes seem much more focused now on denying al-Shabaab territory or supporting Somali ground actions. Now, it may look like a war, it may sound like a war, but saying we're at war is something the Trump administration went to great lengths to avoid, hence workarounds like area of active hostility. I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't characterize that we're at war. I mean, we're, it's specifically designed for us not to own that. But those designations and definitions matter little to Somalis. As the U.S. campaign against al-Shabaab has intensified, Shabaab has also been more specifically targeting the camps, the intelligence hubs that the U.S. and Somali forces have been using to wage war on them, and sometimes very successfully. There have been several U.S. ground forces killed in Somalia in recent years, and in January of 2020, in, a, in an audacious attack, Shabaab struck an airfield in Kenya, which was central to the U.S. drone campaign. The U.S. military has confirmed that one of its service members and two U.S. military contractors were killed. The commander of U.S. Africa Command issued this warning of, quote, pursuing those responsible for this attack and al-Shabaab who seeks to harm Americans and U.S. interests. So it is a war between the United States and Shabaab, however it might be characterized. So the question I had after hearing all of this was pretty simple. Is the U.S. response even working? Well, it depends on who defines success. In 2020, Abdullahi said there were some short-term successes in terms of recapturing key towns, Shabab strongholds, things like that. But he thought that by not admitting to its faults, the U.S. military was countering its own objectives. It's a sentiment Chris shared, too. If you stay silent, your enemies will exploit that silence. 
Somalia is a challenging environment, and there's no doubt that Al-Shabaab fabricates claims of civilian harm. Part of the reason it's been able to do that is because for 12 years, the US was entirely silent about civilian deaths. I think what is particularly challenging for civilian communities is when militaries refuse to accept when things go wrong. And that is a rich recruiting ground for militant and terrorist organizations. Look, these people bomb you from 10,000 miles away and they don't even care. They won't even admit when they harm you. Getting it wrong can lose wars. AFRICOM is now under new leadership. We asked them about all of this. In 2022, they did not respond. Back in 2020, AFRICOM sent us a statement saying the U.S. military only uses precision force at the request of or in support of the host government, and that they were going to be publishing quarterly reports where they respond to allegations of civilian deaths. That began in April 2020. In August 2022, the Pentagon published a new action plan to reduce civilian harm. It's scheduled to be phased in over the next several years, and when it's implemented, it will be the first time the entire Department of Defense has a standard when it comes to civilian harm. But the U.S. government is still undercounting the extent of that harm. In September 2022, the Department of Defense admitted to just 12 civilian killings it deemed credible worldwide. According to Air Wars, dozens of incidents appear unaccounted for. Speaking personally, I'm not sure what the war on terror has become. They do feel like endless wars, so many of these conflicts that the United States is in. There's a grim joke at Air Wars that we begin monitoring multiple conflicts. We've yet to end the monitoring of a single conflict that we're tracking. If you look at the conflicts in places like Iraq, in Syria, in Libya, you know the nature of war hasn't changed one jot. So what we are actually seeing is a, is a transfer of risk from ourselves onto local fighters, onto local civilian populations. The nature of war hasn't changed. The nature of risk has. And we kid ourselves because we don't have, thank God, body bags coming home. The body bags are often there, but they just don't leave the countries anymore. Mohammed Osman's relatives they're the ones who are carrying that shift of risk. My mother-in-law, who was the eldest injured in that incident, she can't stand, she can't go to a lavatory or toilet. She can't walk. While the youngest one, who was about nine years, she has no physical injury right now, but she had a trauma. In the night, she wakes up screaming because of what happened that night. Mohammed says his brother-in-law is still in Jalip, and he was still asking himself one question. He lost his daughter, his elder daughter, and his and mother is still in a critical condition. He could not understand and yet find answer to the question why he was the victim of that ASI, as he was not Al-Shabaab or linked to this group. So why? This is what, what I need an answer for. And that's The Take. This episode was updated by Alexandra Locke. The original production team was Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, Priyanka Tilvey, Ney Alvarez, Dina Kisbe, 
Natalia Aldana, Stacey Samuel, Graylin Brashear, and me, Kevin Hurton. In for Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is the sound designer. Aya Almi Lake and Adam Abu Gad are our engagement producers. Ney Alvarez is the head of audio. We'll be back.